Hey there, and welcome to another edition of Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Geraghty. Today, we are revisiting an interview from 2018 with Rohini Pondi. Rohini is product lead at Square, the payments platform aimed at small and medium businesses, which is part of Block, the big tech group. On today's show, you'll hear how Rohini spots and solves customer problems, the methods she uses to stay close to customers, and how her team handles validation and testing before shipping changes. Joining Rohini in the studio is Intercom Senior Director of Product Management, Michelle Fitzpatrick. So without further ado, over to Michelle. Rohini, welcome to Inside Intercom. Thank you. It's great being here. So to get started, can you give us a quick feel for your career to date, as well as what you're doing today at Square? Sure. You know, I was, actually, as I was looking back on my career, I think a lot of it was learning what I didn't want to do. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I did computer engineering in school, loved math, but I realized I didn't want to be a computer engineer graduating. So I went into consulting for a few years, did that, then realized I didn't want to do this forever. <laughs> so went and got my MBA and then... I think through having the technical and business background, mm-hmm. I realized product management kind of fit, but I didn't really know what it was, right? I don't know if any of us really know what no. it is. <laughs> I, I discovered it from a tweet from Paul Adams. Really? Yeah, for this job. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> and I looked it up and I was like, what is product management? And when I clicked on it, I was like, that's what I want to do. That is a cool route yeah. through a tweet. Through a tweet. <laughs> um, so I think, yeah, definitely like a number of years ago, everyone was just discovering it through different channels. Yes, yes. And now it feels like everyone knows what it is or yes. it feels more known. I went to Grace Hopper last year oh, and wow. everyone was asking me about how to get into product management. It's like, you're all an undergrad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how is totally. that possible? <laughs> I know. And it feels like when when I was in school, there was just not a career path or wasn't spoken yeah. about as, some, as an option. Exactly, exactly. But then I went into the startup world, figured out product management and then came to Square about two years ago. And so at Square, I manage a product called Square Invoices, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of people know Square through our little hardware readers and making that swiping action from back in the day. But there's a lot of our merchants that aren't face-to-face with their buyers, or they have a sale that happens 30, 60, 90 days after they deliver a good or, or finish a service. And so for those types of sellers, we offer Square Invoices where they can send a digital invoice to their buyer, and then that client can pay online. And all that magic happens through Square. Nice. Yeah. So as someone who's worked in product then from early stage startups all the way up to uh, Square as a publicly traded company, how do you think the role of the PM changes as a company scales? I guess some, some of it is you as a PM have to just fit in and fix the gaps that you see mm-hmm. and then move out of the way for everything else to happen naturally. Right. And so as you scale, it just becomes... I don't know if your role changes as much as your flexibility kind of shifts. Mm. And so you're filling in different gaps or you're trying to find out where the biggest need is to go solve that problem. And again, stay out of the way of everything else that's actually working. (laughs) So at least what I found as you scale is there becomes this natural, there's more people, there's more processes. And so Mm. communication becomes really important and communication becomes an N-squared problem. Right. right. It's always like that. And so at scale, it becomes even more so. And I think coming from a startup world to 
square size, I've learned how much written communication is critical to, right. to our process. Yeah, we're very much the Amazonian-esque mm-hmm. um, style of working where we have documentation upon documentation for everything that we're doing. It provides that transparency, but then it also, as a product manager, I think the one thing that I struggled with, but I love now, is being articulate in your writing and being comprehensive mm-hmm. so that the narrative is clear to anyone else that's reading it. And you don't have to, one, it, it helps myself kind of come up with like, oh, this is why we're doing it. There's, no, yeah, yeah. there's no option to hand wave over the details. The details have to be a part of it. And then it provides that direction and articulation of the story to the team as well. Yeah, I think I find that too. If we write um, a project brief at the start of yeah. every every project and it's pretty short, like maybe like 250 words. And to write something that explains the problem and be really concise, mm-hmm. it's such a good forcing function to make you think about it and articulate it. And usually by the time you've done that, it's kind of almost served its job for you. Exactly. And then you can talk to people really clearly and you can phrase it really well instead of like being vague and finding it hard to communicate yes. and get your point across. It's almost like I think of when I used to do my homework in elementary school and, you know, if you had to rewrite your notes, mm-hmm. it kind of sticks with you a little bit yes. more. That's exactly the same thing. You know the story in your brain. If you write it down, it just sticks with you a little bit better and you can Mm -hmm. communicate that in any other medium very easily. Totally. And I I found like as Intercom has scaled. So when I joined, it was uh, much smaller, like under 50 people. Oh, okay. And now as we've grown, teams get created and roles get created. And then that role has turned into a team of people. (laughs) And it's just been like the challenge of keeping everybody in sync and communicating with people relying just on face-to-face or verbal communication just doesn't scale. Yes. And that's where using written communication and having some canonical documents in a exactly. project, we find that to be super important. Absolutely. Especially if you're if you're the new person yes. and like trying to get up to speed and there's just, if it's just tribal knowledge or it's just hallway conversations, mm-hmm. it just takes so much longer yeah. to understand what the rhyme and reason was for any of the decisions made yeah. in the past. And then people have to try and kind of give the story. And yeah. as you give it, you're like, this is ludicrous. <laughs> How is this how we work? So then maybe let's talk a little bit about introducing those processes. So definitely like we've found it as we've scaled, we've we've introduced new processes. Sometimes they're designed to help us go faster and then sometimes to help us like work better, but they don't always work out as intended. Do you have any examples of times when the process that you implemented like didn't work as you planned? And tell me a little bit about, about that. So I feel like sometimes the word process just gets a bad rap. Yes. <laughs> um, and if you look at it with a product lens, the process, if it's if it's not working, isn't serving the, the people that it's supposed to be in some way. And so, especially if the process is coming top down in an organization, mm. it almost becomes this ubiquitous thing that everyone has to do, but no one actually believes in, or it doesn't help you get your job done any better, faster, quicker. So just, I think process just gets a really bad rap. But what we do, at least on uh, the invoices team, is we iterate on the process just like we iterate on the product. And so our team has tried out a lot of different things that some work better than others. (laughs) And we're constantly iterating. One example that we tried recently was a squad model for our engineering team, kind of just splitting up a little bit into smaller squads. That did not work. (laughs) And it didn't work for us at this time. That right. doesn't mean in the future we might not try it again and it will or won't work later on. What but, were some of the challenges that you find? You know, I think a lot of it was 
the communication piece again. Certain folks in the team were working on certain projects. Others were working on other projects. But the core tech stack had to be managed by the entire team. Mm -hmm. And so when certain projects were releasing, half the team knew about it, half the team didn't. And then if there were bugs or tickets or on-calls filed, whoever was on call had to deal with it, regardless of whether which squad they were on. Right. And so kind of knowing what's happening was the bigger issue, was that mm-hmm. that was a core root problem. And the squad model didn't fix that for us. It actually just made it worse. Right. So we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but there's going to be a point, a tipping point where the team just becomes too big to be able to right. um, keep going in this unified route. So right. we'll have to uh, cross that bridge when we come to it. But... Yeah, that was something that didn't work out super well for us. <laughs> and how does the do the processes then work at Square? Like, is each team free to work in different ways than other teams? Or how much has to be shared amongst different teams in a way of working? And how much is left for each team to figure out for itself? Yeah, I think there's a good deal of autonomy that we have uh, within the teams. And so the thing that I really like, and the the reason I think the process works so well is you pretty much create this own custom culture for your own team. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to happen at this big grand level across the entire company. And so there's almost like this unique fingerprint that each team has. And so some of the engineering work and the way we do our road mapping and things like that are custom in ways that work for our team. Mm-hmm. And then we communicate it out in a singular fashion right. across the rest of the org. Okay, so there's a mix of yeah. of per team and then the shared process. Exactly, exactly. So Square is really widely known as a very data-driven company. What is your relationship like with the product analytics team? Or do you have an analyst that works embedded in your team? Yeah, we, we have um, an analyst on our team. And so product analytics really does have a very close relationship with the product group. Mm-hmm. I think that, like I said before, my job as a PM is to fill in gaps were needed and then get out of the way yeah. for the smarter people in the room <laughs> to do what they need to do. And product analytics and our data science teams are mm-hmm. one of those. And so we work very closely together, but I try to stay out of their way so that they can do the, the best job they do. Right. Yeah. And how do they influence the projects? Are, are product analytics involved the whole way through or are they heavier at the start to help define the problem? Or is it more at the end after you've released something to measure the success of it? Right. Yeah, it's both. Our product analyst is really, she is able to define and look at the problem and our success metrics and give us recommendations on before we start the project, Mm -hmm. here's the real problem from the quant side Mm -hmm. and really just creating that those metrics that we should be driving towards. Mm -hmm. And then looking at things as we're releasing, if we're doing an A-B test, she's definitely heavily involved in looking at all Mm -hmm. of that. And then at the end of any project, kind of wrapping it up through, okay, here's what we expected. Here's what we actually saw. And this is good or bad because here's my read on this data. You mentioned A-B testing there. And I'm I'm kind of curious about it because that's something we don't really do a lot of at Intercom. So can you talk to me about maybe an example or how you do A-B testing at Square? I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Sure. We try to do as much A-B testing as we can. It's probably not as quick and easy as a lot of startups Mm -hmm. uh, find A-B testing. But we try to experiment with a lot of our new features or uh, work that we're doing as much as possible so that we're not creating bad experiences for people and we're driving the right types of actions that we want to be driving. Mm-hmm. I'm actually curious, why why doesn't Intercom A-B test? 
We will run betas of okay. things. So we'll we'll develop something and we'll put it out with a small group of users and we'll compare it to a control group mm-hmm. and we'll look at how it's performing. But we don't necessarily uh, build out like two versions of a solution or two different ways of doing it and compare uh, one against the other I against see. a control group. So that's just the way we've been working. But uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see as we as we grow and as we look at different challenges, if some of them will make more sense to try a couple different options. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, some of the things that we've seen were, we actually did an A-B test that uh, was about a new form uh, redesign that we, we actually blogged about this because analytics, engineering, um, product, and design were all part of this. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of looked at, oh, here's how our form feels to users from a user experience perspective. And then you kind of saw in the data that your eyes had to zigzag across the form in order to fill it out. Right. And if we use almost like an F shape of how you should fill out a form, like it, it goes top to bottom, left to right, and then a little bit less data on the next, on the second part of that form, left to right, then people were just, it was just easier to fill out. Mm-hmm. People were able to read the form a little bit better. And you could see that not only from the design, but the, the quantitative data showed people actually filling out the form more than what? before because you just couldn't uh, grok all of that information that mm-hmm. was on two columns of a screen. And so we A-B tested that just to make sure yeah. we thought it was correct, but almost like, I guess it's closer to your beta yeah, process. So that's similar to beta. I guess like we don't try like two different versions of something and say like, okay, we're not really sure. Let's try version A and version B of a, of a new solution right. and see how each perform. But we do a lot of, I guess, like what you're describing there around testing with a small group, getting feedback, making some iterations, trying again. So lots of times, even though we'll just, people will just see like each release coming out as though it's finished. It's gone through many iterations. And some customers have seen it in very different shapes the whole way through. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you have a process on on the usability test that you kind of do along the way? Mm, It definitely varies between things. So for some, we will do interviews with customers Mm -hmm. and we'll watch them using it. Other times we'll just talk to them through Intercom and we'll look at data. Okay. Um, So it really depends on the change of what we're looking for. At the start of each one, I'd be curious to see if you do something similar. Like we'll set out our hypothesis of what we're expecting, what we're looking to learn during this beta. And they're all things that we may, they're either things that we're uncertain about Mm -hmm. in the solution or things that we're trying to verify before we release it to a larger scale. That's exactly how we do it too. It's either the uncertainty or the biggest risk that you're mm-hmm. making an assumption on. Yeah. And validate that so that you can feel at least halfway decent about releasing something. I guess with the both working in like financial payments, the margin yes. of error is yes. a lot smaller than if it's yes. a, a message that went wrong with a customer. How do you assess those kinds of risks? Like, is there a lot of rigor that goes into testing and validating before any change goes to customers? Definitely. Yes. Because of what you just said, mm-hmm. we're a payments company. And especially if there's changes that are happening on the UI or the front end, mm. we can test and move quickly. Those aren't as much of a problem. As soon as any change touches the way we send and receive money, mm-hmm. that's when we want to be so sure about everything that we're doing. Because for our sellers, cash flow is really important. These are a lot of small and medium businesses that need that cash at the time that we said that we're going to deliver it. Mm-hmm. And so that is the core piece of our mission and being able to service these types of customers that we don't want to screw that up. Right. So we have to, I at least take it very personally to make sure that we don't do those dumb yeah. mistakes. 
Right. Because that's a, like, if you break that trust, that's exactly. gone. Exactly. Right. Yes. So looking at then the data side, how do you look at the other side of this? Like the more qualitative side of feedback? How do you build a sense of how people feel about your product or get that qualitative input into into the problems that you're solving? Yeah. For me, I love talking to customers. That Mm -hmm. is the one job of product that I think is very, like the most important thing. If you do nothing else, at least talk to the customers or the folks that are using your product. And so I do interviews at least a few times a week with cold calling customers and just chatting with them or asking them to sign up and get on my calendar. People are very responsive to that. They love kind of sharing what's going on, what's not working, definitely. Yes. Uh, what is working. And so that input is really helpful to kind of take a, take a pulse of where we are. We also do things like qualitative research, usability tests. Mm-hmm. We try to get people in the door into Square at least once a week. Oh, wow. um, yeah, we're just starting that out. And that's been amazing. We love that process. We're also doing NPS surveys. We're doing other really quick surveys on our dashboard that kind of just pop up every once in a while. Right. Asking people, is this working for you? How satisfied are you? Mm. Those kinds of things to get. It's almost like a qualitative response that you can put a comment in, but we do get some quantitative feedback from that too. Right. Yeah, because again, with the scale of customers, exactly. how do you know if what you're hearing from customers feels representative of like the large and varied user base that you yes. have? Yes. Yeah, I think you have a a pretty good sense of it once you start hearing the same story repeated back to you a few mm-hmm. times. You you can kind of pull that thread a little bit more and realize that there's a big nest of problems right there. Yeah. So I think there isn't a number that we look for. At, like after 10 responses, we yeah. know for sure this is a 10x problem. It's more you can kind of, you hear that same pattern mm-hmm. and then you hear the pain that happens with that pattern. Yeah. That's why I love getting on the phone with people. As soon as it hits that emotional cord, you know that there's something very painful about this problem right. that you haven't solved for them. And so there's something different about being a little bit more abstracted away from it when you get survey responses or numerical data that yeah. doesn't really capture everything that is actually happening and the color and context of actually talking to somebody. Mm. When you're talking with them, those calls that you do every week, are you asking just general questions about Square or do you use that as an opportunity to dig into whatever area you're looking at and focusing on at the moment? Yeah, it kind of depends. It's both. The weeks that we definitely have something that we're working on, we want to share that with as many people as possible. The weeks that are a little bit slower or we're kind of in the weeds with certain things, Mm -hmm. I just ask general questions. But we have a community forum with Square. And so we did this ask me anything type of AMA style, Reddit style mm-hmm. uh, uh, conversation. That was very cool. We got, I, it was pretty much like 50 customer interviews done in one hour because wow. people were just pinging us with random questions. And in that, I offered out my personal calendar to everybody mm-hmm. and folks would just kind of sign up and say, here's what I want to talk about. And so those conversations were definitely more direct. Yeah. Otherwise it becomes, hey, can I talk to you? You're a customer. I want to hear your feedback. Would you have 15 or 20 minutes to chat with me? When you talk there about when you're on the phone and you can like hear that kind of emotional feeling, like you can get a sense of like the magnitude of a problem for someone that is hard to express in words, that can kind of inform your gut or it can kind of give you just like more conviction in this problem that you need to solve. How do you, how do you balance that against the data or do you ever find that they conflict with each other? I don't think that it happens very often where if it's 
again, like a, a pattern that you're hearing. There mm. might be a one-off, definitely, you know, you, you're talking to someone. So there might be a one-off conversation that you have for several of those where someone's just very frustrated or enthusiastic, on the other hand, about something that you've built. Mm-hmm. But when you hear it as a pattern, the data should support that. Yeah. And we don't, we don't really just kind of run off as soon as we hear one input to mm-hmm. go build some, something that's very niche. We do try to keep up with a process of looking at how we prioritize and what have we heard often, what's most important, and mm-hmm. what does the data tell us? But kind of, I guess, hearing those things kind of like the, the string that you start oh, pulling at. And that's yes. when you like uncover like that there's something here. Exactly. Yeah. When you're on the phone with someone and they actually choke up because they told you that they got a square capital loan at the moment that they needed it most and they were able to like sustain their business for another week or wow. you know, through the holidays or something like that. That just like, it just gets you. Yeah. And you can hear them choking up and yeah. like how important that was to them. So that's pretty awesome. <laughs> and do you bring that uh, insight back to the team and share it with them? And how, how do you kind of get the team to understand things the same way that you do when you're spending so much time talking with customers and looking at data just much deeper than they For would? sure. Yeah, it's it, that is an interesting balancing act too, where you don't want to force the team into all of these meetings mm-hmm. <laughs> that you have, but you do want to share these real conversations with people. Mm-hmm. And so what we've done is we've, included people that are interested in joining some of these user interviews. It's very much optional. But if you're interested in joining, we have an engineering, design, marketing, join these conversations whenever I have them. And then in our new weekly uh, usability tests, we actually have a watching room where we, yeah. So we create this secondary conference room where people can dial into the meeting. Mm-hmm. And so that the per, the participant that's actually in the office doesn't feel overwhelmed by, you know, 20 squares yes. in their face. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have a watching room where they can actually listen in and kind of see where is this user tapping into the product? What's working? What, what are they confused by without leading the witness too much? Right. And so they they see the actual points of like, Oh, that is kind of confusing. Oh, that doesn't really really make sense to this, what we're trying to solve here. And how does that impact the team? Do they start coming up with um, Oh, for ideas? sure. Yes. yes. There's a lot of ideas at all times. I mean, you probably know as a product manager, you get ideas from everywhere. That's true. <laughs> and it's, it's all about taking that seemingly unlimited amounts of input and making that focused output. But I love it. I love that the team's thinking about it that way. And they have a very product first mentality as engineers, as designers, as marketers. So yeah, that's fantastic to me. Okay, so given like the scale of feedback that you're getting from customers that you're talking with and the data side, uh, prioritization must be like a constant challenge for you. What, what kind of tools and techniques do you use to prioritize the work that you think is valuable or worth doing? Maybe talk to me just a little bit about that. Sure. So I've used this framework before, and now we use it again at Square with some slight modifications. Mm -hmm. And I stole it from Adam Nash, Mm -hmm. the previous CEO at Wealthfront. And now I think he's at Greylock. Okay. Um, But he had this great blog post that I'm sure uh, anyone listening can look up. But he talks about the metrics movers, the customer feedback, and the delight or vision strategic parts of bucketing, prioritization Mm -hmm. models. And so I I use the same kind of three general areas. So in any given quarter or year or however we're kind of looking at our goals for that timeframe, Mm -hmm. we look at, okay, what's what are the biggest metrics we want to shift? So it might be increasing revenue. It might be decreasing our loss rates. It might be something around acquisition or engagement metrics. 
We then look at what are our customers saying and how prevalent is this mm-hmm. feedback? So things from sales or from direct customers. So there might be something that sales is telling me where it's a very enterprise merchant, whereas there might be other feedback that I'm getting that's across all of our customers, but they're mostly SMBs. And then the third bucket is really just kind of this catch-all almost of the delightful or strategic pieces. It, It might not be something that gets prioritized because it will affect a metric or a customer has been asking for it, but it will be a foundational piece to where we want to go in the next Mm -hmm. few years. And so we do need to start building that foundation now in order to do it. And so usually what I've done before is kind of t-shirt size a little bit into these buckets and say, say you have something in your backlog that's, I don't even want to give an example that might (laughs) give away our backlog, but uh, let's say you have a project in your backlog and then you can kind of look at it at at a small, medium or large scale of within those three buckets. Yeah. What we've done is at Square is now quantify those. So look at a scale of one through five. It's still a t-shirt size. Yeah. But one is an extra small, five is an extra large. And in that way, you can kind of get an average and you look at that average across the board just Mm -hmm. to help. There's just so much input, like you were saying, so much uh, that we could build. Mm -hmm. So it just kind of helps create some sort of discernible difference between all of these potential projects for us. Yeah, because this is the one that I really love around understanding how other teams yeah. and other PMs build their roadmaps. Yeah, And I always find it at a conference, actually, in particular, if any if any PM talks about their roadmap and puts up like a slide that has any visualization, you see everyone taking out their phones. Yes, like, exactly. Is that what their roadmap looks like? What do roadmaps look like? Uh, no one knows what they actually look like. How do you do it? How do you do it? Yeah. It's kind of like this this dark art. And, it's true. Uh, are some people numeric about it? Or are other people using themes? How, yeah. What software are you using? Yeah. Is there a software? And it's just a really hard problem. I it's think true. it's different everywhere. Like yeah. I'm always curious to, to hear about how other people create their roadmap and craft it and then communicate it internally. Can you tell me a little bit about how you shape the roadmap for your team at Square and then how that relates to how other teams create their roadmaps as yeah. well? Yeah. So I'm getting, I, I like that because I, I think at the, like two years ago, I was speaking at industry and I did show a visualization of our roadmap and there were so many like phones out. Right. <laughs> it was like at a rock concert. I was like, yeah. oh, what's happening? <laughs> give the people what they want. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's true. I think each team at Square has that autonomy to, to build their roadmap however they want. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a singular overarching roadmap. So if right. you do deviate from that, you have to like go back and manually, you know, put in what's what's coming out from your team that's very significant or that marketing needs to know about. What we do on invoices is it's a very simple Gantt chart. I mean, even from the execution level, it's a Google spreadsheet that we've made into a Gantt chart. Yes, so, exactly what oh, we do. Oh, cool. <laughs> nice. It's it's super easy. It's a tool that you can, it's flexible enough for us to use in whatever way we want. Mm-hmm. Um, I link all PRDs and JIRAs from there. All of our epics are linked into there so that anyone cross-functionally can just look at that. Right. say, okay, I need more details on this specific project that's in flight. Let me go in and look at the doc. So we just use that for our road mapping. And then our backlog, like I said, has that prioritization matrix. Mm-hmm. Once things kind of bubble up to the top and we are planning for the next sprint or the next cycle that we use, things just get populated into the roadmap. 
Okay. And how do you communicate the roadmap? We had a talk in here recently from Rich Mirnov who talked about how you need to communicate differently to different stakeholders. So Mm -hmm. what do your sales team care about? You know, they're caring about the customer they heard like last week that wanted something. (laughs) Uh, Your support team care about like, are you going to fix those issues that we're hearing about? So how do you tailor or communicate the roadmap at Square, either the the overall product team roadmap or your area's roadmap to these different stakeholders? Yeah, I think the way that I've done it at Square is to have a cross-functional sync every so often Mm. uh, where we talk about here's what's coming up on the roadmap, here's what's been released recently, and here's what you need to know about it. Mm -hmm. And we usually have some sort of documentation of like, here are the top features or talking points that you as a salesperson need to know, you as a support person need to know, et cetera. And then we're usually working so closely together, even during the launch, Mm -hmm. that most of these teams, this shouldn't be a surprise to them in any way, right? Right. And we tell them about what's coming up so often that I think that none of it should be a surprise. (laughs) I do not like surprising our cross-functional team members with anything. So it's a process where we just go over, here's what's happened, here's what's going to happen. And then any details that they need in between, mm-hmm. there's always Slack or, you know, uh, finding me in the hallways or just looking at the documents that we have linked to um, all of that. What kind of timeline is that? Like when you're, are you looking at kind of like the next month, the next quarter, the next six months with them? I aim to look at the next quarter. Mm-hmm. So I, I I always give an analogy of my product confidence is like a hurricane map almost mm-hmm. where you, you're really certain about the next month. Right. And then from there, it becomes a broader and broader yeah. radius of where it could direction. go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, I, of course, like no timeline is promised, but here's what we're thinking about. Right. And so I just want to give them a heads up of like, we do think that this can be accomplished in a quarter. Mm-hmm. Things will come up and we will not be able to foresee every challenge that arises. Right. But if, if everything kind of hits to plan, we'll be able to deliver X, Y, and Z. And then there's always the um, stipulation of, do not tell any customers that this is the exact date. Yeah. <laughs> we do not want to share that yet until I'm 100% confident we're going to hit that, which usually right. doesn't even happen until like a week before launch, even if then. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds very familiar. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk you. with us today. And just to close out, where can our listeners go to keep up to date with your insights or more generally what's coming next at Square? Sure. I think the best place that we, or the channel we use the most is Twitter. Right. So uh, Square's uh, Twitter handle and our social media folks are hilarious. So mm-hmm. I definitely recommend following Square on Twitter. And if you need to reach me, I'm also there uh, at Rohini P. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed our chat with Rohini Pondi. The Inside Intercom podcast archive is a vast resource of knowledge at your fingertips. So do take a browse back through our hundreds of episodes for more insights from some of the brightest in business. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This is Inside Intercom.